This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We're really delighted that I'm able to introduce to you Drew Ottman, who's president of the Kaiser Family Foundation. Um, as many of you know, he is a very well-respected uh, leader in the field of health policy, and he really was the engine behind uh, the Kaiser Family Foundation and all its respect in our field for the knowledge and information that he shares with us, both locally, nationally, and internationally. Drew will be in conversation with Andy Byman, who is a UCSF professor of medicine, epidemiology and biostatistics and health policy, and I, a very treasured colleague here at the Institute. Andy brings tremendous expertise to this conversation because he himself has recently returned to our campus after having been the leader of the U.S. Agency for Healthcare Research and Policy. The passage and implementation of the ACA, or Affordable Care Act, was really one of the stellar milestones for American health policy in the Obama administration. Clearly, it achieved a great deal in reducing the rate of uninsurance and improving uh, quality of care, instigating many, many creative approaches for trying to find different ways of improving our health care system. And it's clear that it's not that the ACA did not have its critics. In fact, the Republican Congress attempted to eliminate it over many, many attempts in Congress. We also know that it was one of the rallying cries during the Trump election as one of the messages of what he was going to try to attempt to do. And clearly all of us are very concerned about the ballot, the the, uh, House of Representatives and what they will be doing related to the ACA and efforts to remove many of the basic components of the ACA that were so crucial in its success. The Institute for Health Policy Studies is very committed to being a resource to our community during this time of tremendous upheaval in the field of health policy because it affects all of us in the work that we do as basic scientists, as the work that we do as clinicians and researchers. I'm very pleased to announce that the Institute is working very closely with the UCSF UC Hastings Consortium on uh, law, science, and health policy. And they will be helping us keep abreast of all of the changes that are taking place, both at the federal level, at the state level, and at the local level. And the consortium has launched a very interesting a website called healthcarereformtracker.org that will help us do the tracking that we need in this time of uncertainty. Today is the first of a series of conversations and uh, panels that we will be having in the months ahead that will be really addressing the impact of healthcare reform on all of us. Both the consortium and the institute are very grateful to the California Healthcare Foundation, to UCSF, and to UC Hastings for their support of these endeavors. Your handout includes a lot of details about the website and the date of the next event, which will be held in conjunction with the March for Science, April 22nd. You will be receiving a letter from 
our chancellor regarding particular details about what UCSF will be doing that morning. I also want to put a plug in for the graduate division and their efforts with the science policy group to conduct a series of advocacy activities, and it's called Advocacy for Science and Scientists in the Year 2017 and Beyond. I want to turn things over to Drew and Andy without any further delay, so I'll invite you to read their biographies, which also appear um, on your handout. Now please join me in welcoming Drew and Andy Byman in conversations about healthcare in Trump's America. Hello, Drew, and welcome to UCSF. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Um, and thank you for that kind introduction, Claire. Drew, I've known you, uh, really had the pleasure of knowing you for many years. Uh, but, you know, for those in the audience, can you tell us a little bit about um, the Kaiser Family Foundation, uh, its connection to Kaiser Permanente, or lack of connection? Uh, and uh, what are the areas of focus of the foundation? How would you characterize your overall mission? Okay, well, thank you, Claire. Thank you, she's disappeared. Thank you, Andy. Um, wow, thank you all for coming. I, uh, Andy knows this, but uh, when I was in government one time, in state government, I was described in a major newspaper, it was actually the New York Times, as a nice guy trapped in a deadly serious face. <laughs> so, <laughs> you are my favorite healthcare institution in America. I love UCSF. I get most, don't tell Stanford, I get most of my medical care here. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be here. It's just evidently there's no way you would ever know that. <laughs> also, um, before I get <laughs> into Andy's question, he and I share a bond which you'll all find repugnant. Uh, and I understand that, which is that we, our religion uh, is Boston sports. And so, um, Andy, I want to present to you, I know, you can boo, I understand, um, this priceless New England Patriots championship pencil. Wow. Um, which, will, which will inflate the quality of your ideas. <laughs> I have a second pencil for whoever asks the best question later to find if the question I can't answer. Um, all right, the Kaiser Foundation. Well, it, it was actually my grandmother's fault. Um, it's true, in a sense, in a profound sense. Uh, the day I received my PhD, it was in political science at MIT 100 years ago, I got a letter that day from my then 99-year-old grandmother, Dora Auerbach, and all it said was, Dear Drew, about that degree, so what are you going to do, open a political science store? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I loved what I did uh, as an academic, but I left academia and went to what is now CMS. It was then the Healthcare Financing Administration. This would shock you. Then a new agency filled with esprit de corps in the sense that we were going to drive change throughout the entire healthcare system through our control of Medicare and Medicaid financing. Uh, then one day I drove into the Humphrey building and the guard came over to me and said, Sir, the Reagan transition team has requisitioned your parking space. <laughs> it led to stints at various foundations, including the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and state government. And a brief stint at the Pew Charitable Trust. 
Uh, and then one day, some very uh, uh, forward-thinking uh, national figures uh, had decided to, and I will not tell you the story, particularly being taped, um, uh, had decided to create a new organization from what I'll loosely describe as the ashes of a previous Kaiser Family Foundation. And they were people whose names you might know, the, the late, wonderful Congresswoman Barbara Jordan, former secretary of, actually, H.E.W., uh, Joe Califano, a um, man named Hale Champion, what a wonderful name, who was a big figure, actually, in California healthcare, but also in healthcare generally. And I said, you know, I'm really not interested in foundations. I've worked in a couple. Uh, they're a little bit full of themselves and fairly slow moving. And, um, but I have this thought about a different kind of foundation. Actually, to fast forward legally, we're not a, we're not a foundation. Um, which uh, wouldn't make grants. Um, it would be an information organization. And through information, this was a time when healthcare was becoming a bigger issue could try, uh, with no delusions of grandeur at all, to be a counterweight to big money and big politics and healthcare, and through information be a little bit of a voice for people. And that was the very simple, very basic idea. Uh, came out to California, I had no interest in California, but I did think I might get tall and blonde. Um, <laughs> that worked. Um, if I came and started the, uh, the, the new organization uh, to do what we do now. Uh, we basically do three things. We produce all kinds of policy analysis and research from very sophisticated stuff to very basic facts, which we found can be useful. Some of it interesting, some of it mind-numbing. Um, uh, lots of polling and survey research, which we're well known for and journalism. We run now by far the largest health policy newsroom uh, in America. But all of it, a spectrum of information which is part of playing the institutional or organizational role as this independent voice on behalf of people that uh, we have been building for now many years of the organization to play. I'll just tell you one funny story. Now it's commonplace. You expect it, that foundations are involved in policy in some way, but in the beginning it was considered not only highly unusual, but radical. The idea that something called a foundation, even though we weren't really one, would be analyzing legislation in real time. And so this was announced. And when it was announced, it was actually front page news in several major newspapers. And the next week, I got a letter from the then dean of uh, American Foundations, who was an old and good friend who had once worked with me at Robert Wood Johnson. And it was on her perfect stationery with her perfect handwriting. And it said, Dear Drew, you will destroy us all and drag us down. <laughs> Have a nice day. <laughs> um, I'll tell you uh, just a couple other things. Uh, you mentioned Kaiser Permanente. We have absolutely no connection to Kaiser Permanente except for the crazy letters I get sometimes that say things like, why in the world would you waste my precious premium dollars on that stupid study? <laughs> Whatever it is. Um, and um, our name is not particularly good, except we have a good brand, if you think about it. Kaiser Family Foundation, because we're not a foundation. We're not connected to Kaiser. So we can have a little contest today. If anyone at the end has a better new name for us, I would love to have it. And finally, 
we're moving. Oh, we have a building in D.C., but our headquarters have always been in Menlo Park, uh, and we're moving to China Basin so that we can be closer to you. Um, and my hope is that we can create over time a little community with you where we do lots of stuff together. We're going to have a nice conference center which we will make available for free to you uh, and to all the nonprofits and public agencies in the area to hold their events. So I am really looking forward to that and to building this new community um, with you. I might even grow my afro back again. So Drew is obviously a bit of an introvert, and so I'm going to try to draw him out a little bit. Um, I'm just trying not to talk about repealing the place anymore. <laughs> so that does get us onto that. Yeah, so I know it's it pretty hard I knew to it not coming. read or listen or watch something in the news these days. What's your big picture view of all this? Um, uh, you know, Joe Biden uh, once famously said of the ACA that it was a really big effing deal. Um, true this time as well? Um, I, I, I guess, uh, I love the former vice president, um, but I, I guess I would say he's wrong. Um, I think this is a bigger effing deal mm -hmm. uh, than the passage of the ACA. Um, we, may, we may even see... Uh, one of the iron rules of my field, benefits once conferred cannot be taken away, uh, violated for the first time I, I, I know of. But I think it is a bigger deal uh, uh, for the following reason. Almost a health policy perfect storm because we have uh, not only the ACA on the table, uh, but we also have arguably even a bigger issue, Medicaid, our, now our largest public program, um, 70 million people on Medicaid now, uh, on the table as well. Uh, I, and I would say nearly uh, the ultimate health, who was in that, was it George Clooney? Whoever was in that movie. Um, health policy perfect storm. It would be the health policy perfect storm if they had moved on to Medicare. Uh, now, what they're doing has implications for Medicare, which we may get into. Uh, so far, they have backed off uh, when it comes to dealing with uh, Medicare premium support for fear of uh, raising the ire of senior voters. There really is only one health care issue, which is a proven voting issue, and that is Medicare. They may get to that. They have not gotten there yet. Uh, so I think it is a bigger deal, actually. Uh, because the two giant programs that focus, that mean so much to low-income people and populations we're all concerned about are on the table, and potentially Medicare as well. But that's only half the story. There are bigger issues which are also um, interwoven into uh, these uh, policy debates they're having right now, where we focus on the ACA, we focus on Medicaid, which do not get enough discussion. Um, I wrote an op-ed about this that I, I don't think got a lot of traction uh, in the Washington Post not too long ago uh, that, that uh, really deserve more attention. Because what this is also about are bigger things. It is also about, and this is very much the agenda of conservatives uh, on Capitol Hill and has been for a long time, fundamentally changing the federal role in health. It's not just about they promised to repeal Obamacare. 
It's fundamentally about changing it to cap federal spending and limit or even eliminate what we've known as the major entitlement programs. This is a more important long-term objective to uh, Congressman Ryan, uh, sorry, Speaker Ryan, um, and other conservatives on the Hill than whatever they do or don't do uh, with the ACA. Capping federal spending, which they do principally through their Medicaid change, and wanted to do by transforming Medicare to a premium support program and do in a more limited way by reducing the subsidies, but they don't eliminate them in the current bill um, under the ACA. Um, other uh, more uh, fundamental changes as well. One is about the nature of health insurance, uh, shifting it uh, from and accelerating an ongoing change from more comprehensive to less comprehensive skimpier coverage with higher deductibles. This has always been the conservative vision of what health insurance should look like in the country. And that is greatly accelerated by the American Health Care Act. It is to me also about shifting what passes for our national cost containment strategy uh, in the country. We've never had a real uh, national cost containment strategy in the country, uh, but of late, we have focused on delivery and payment reform. It's the center of it, and you were very involved in that when you were in D.C. Well, that is now to a large degree by the boards as we shift to a focus on what? Capping federal spending and a focus on the federal budget and the demand side, high deductibles uh, and conservative beliefs about the ways in which that will or won't uh, limit utilization and limit spending. So a shift in our cost containment strategy and most fundamentally really, as is I think fairly obvious, it's about fundamentally rewriting the social contract in health. Uh, and whether we are concerned about each other as a community or everyone should make their own deal. Whether as a matter of national policy, we are responsible for those who are least fortunate among us or those responsibilities fall on individuals or on states. So I don't think it is, I hesitate to use the word jest only about um, things which are uh, a bigger effing deal than the passage of the ACA by themselves. What happens to the ACA and what happens to Medicaid? I think it's actually about these, also about these larger things, which are profound changes in direction in our field, in healthcare, with big consequences for people. That's a bit long-winded, but I, it's important to me to say those things. So how do you think this is playing out with the American people? I mean, at Kaiser, you do a monthly poll. You also poll with other organizations. Uh, what do you take away from what you're seeing in those monthly polls about um, feelings about the ACA, about the possibility of repeal? Um, you know, are you seeing differences in how those polls look, say, when during the Obama administration versus what we're seeing now in these first few months yes. of a Trump administration? Yeah, thank you for that question. That's interesting. We are beginning to see some, I'm sorry, the way we're doing this, I'm uh, not looking left often enough <laughs> for the first time in my life. Um, the... Uh, the um, we are seeing some changes which are, which are uh, uh, really quite interesting. In the, uh, we do an incredible amount of, of, uh, of uh, 
polling um, and survey and survey research. Uh, so we've been doing, for example, a monthly tracking poll on the ACA since the law passed in 2010. We have seen since 2010 no significant change in anything. With the public basically divided, tilting a little bit more negative than positive on the ACA. But that uh, division uh, or mixed opinion has never been randomly distributed. Uh, it's been distributed purely along party lines, where uh, Democrats favor the ACA, uh, Republicans intensely dislike it, and independents are stuck in the middle. Um, we are finally starting to see that shift, and I think it's because people are worried that benefits that they may, even some of them only have distantly understood, came from something called Obamacare, uh, may uh, be lost to them. And so now, for the first time, we've seen the lines cross, and the favorables or positives for the ACA have started to go up. I wouldn't get carried away with how much they're going up, but they have now shifted um, into uh, positive territory. I would also say, just as a general reflection on the polling, that has convinced me, uh, as I talk about deeper changes that we see, um, of another big change in our field, which is, as I've grown up in the field uh, for longer than I care to discuss, I've been in it longer than I care to discuss, you know, we always thought that the major dynamic in our field, or the major force in our field, and one of the impediments to progress has just been the, the, the role of healthcare's major commercial interest and, you know, the industry uh, and all parts of it. I'm absolutely convinced that the major dynamic, obviously still critically important in our field, has been partisanship in recent years and fundamental partisan differences, which are genuine differences in policy, but also just political partisanship uh, as well. And we have seen that in our polling. There is nothing we can ask in our polling that does not divide along partisan lines, including people's perceptions of their experiences. So if you ask people who are in the marketplaces whether they have benefited or not, whether they think they've gotten a good deal or not, it doesn't matter whether they have a high deductible or a low deductible, or they like their premium or they don't like their premium. Literally, the major thing that explains whether they like their experience in the marketplace or they don't is whether they are a Republican or a Democrat. I mean, it is absolutely uh, pervasive and astonishing, so much so that I am convinced, except the head of our polling group, because she has also been the president of the American Association of Public Opinion Research and won't let me fool around, um, if we asked, you know, will the ACA take us to Mars or will it solve the climate change problem, we would get a perfect split between Republicans uh, and Democrats on that, on that question. So that, that is still with us. We see that in the current debate. That is a change. There's also an historic dynamic in polling that we're seeing now, too, I think, raise its head. Um, which is important. So if you go back and look at all the health reform debates, so uh, what, uh, Truman, Nixon, Clinton, which is when we started our organization, uh, and then uh, Obama, and now, I don't know what to call this, let's just call it Trump. Um, they all showed the same phenomenon. Plans were announced and they started, the, the favorables were way up at between 60 and 85 percent. And as soon as there was a detailed plan that came out with real consequences and trade-offs, the 60 percent fell to 30 or 40, sometimes 45 percent. So a little bit, 
Uh, yes, there are unique characteristics of the American Health Care Act, which might warrant negative views. But um, a little bit what we're seeing is just an historic um, pattern in the polling. And if it means we don't get on to any other questions, I do want to say one other thing about what we're seeing in the polling, which I think is very important. There is something else we've seen in the polling over uh, the years we've been doing it, um, which I think is very, very important. And that is that if you pick up the newspaper, if you go to Washington, or you just hang around our field, you would get the impression that everyone's absolute number one priority is the Affordable Care Act. And that's what we fight about. We do not ever see that in our polls. There is nothing about the Affordable Care Act that ever makes it anywhere near the top of the public's list of what they are most concerned about. What people are concerned about are making ends meet. They are concerned about their health care costs and their struggles with their family budgets. Tops on their hit parade are their deductibles, and second, and sometimes it's number one, are drug prices and drug costs. And we see this poll after poll after poll. Uh, people are concerned about the affordability of health care. So much so that uh, I worry that over many years, we've all been doing this, include myself in this, we have misframed our issue. By framing it as healthcare people as an access issue, there's nothing I care about more than the uninsured, but by focusing our message on the uninsured, instead of framing our issue as an economic and pocketbook issue for working people, which is actually what, uh, what they resonate to. Went back and looked at the seminal 2009 Institute of Medicine report on the uninsured, which we all regard as you know, the report on the uninsured. Not only is there not a section on the economic consequences of being uninsured, not only is there not a paragraph on it, there is not a sentence on it that I could find. I think we have misframed our issue. And that will now come home to roost again, uh, politically and in the healthcare field, as everyone thinks about how do you reach those people who voted for Donald Trump on healthcare issues? A long answer, but stuff I like want to say. So, yeah. sorry. So, so let's get into a little bit of sort of the state of play about where things are in, in this process. A couple of weeks ago, Speaker Ryan unveiled the American Health Care Act, uh, which uh, inserted an H in the ACA. So instead of ACA, we're talking about <laughs> AHCA. I don't know if the H is silent. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the... Um, <laughs> it's always silent. <laughs> Uh, soon afterwards, the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, uh, seemed to knock some wind out of the sails. Uh, tell us a little bit about kind of the CBO, its importance in terms of, and, and kind of where we are in, in this process. Uh, I mean, uh, what does this all mean in terms of, uh, you know, what's becoming what feels like a soap opera a little bit of, of, of what's going on with our, our repeal, replace, is the HCA, you know, still in play? Did the CBO knock it out? What's, what's going on? Well, it's absolutely in play. Um, uh, I could tell you otherwise. So the CBO is the you know, congressionally chartered neutral uh, arbiter of what uh, legislative proposals will cost the federal budget. To do their analysis, they also have to look at how many people will be covered or not covered, but their focus is on the impact on the federal budget. Notably, 
they do not look, uh, historically they have not looked, they might, they usually look at 10 year windows, 10 year budget windows, but they have not looked at what the impact will be on states. So if you're looking for the CBO, you know, analysis of what the impact will be on California, you won't find it. That's a gap we always try and fill at Kaiser. Every time there's a major CBO report, we take their methodology and we apply it uh, to the states. For example, we've always done that when there are Medicaid block grant debates. Um, to reduce this recent CBO, and, and, and you can always quibble as researchers, they make assumptions. You look at the literature and the evidence and they make assumptions with this or that um, assumption made by the CBO, as you would with any study that you look at. Uh, but you know, the only thing worse than the CBO would be not having the CBO. It plays a very, very uh, in, in, important, uh, important role. Imagine these legislative debates now without uh, the CBO. So to boil it all down, the first thing the CBO said is that this American Health Care Act will reduce the deficit by about $300 billion. And then the second thing it said, which I think is germane particularly for us, for this audience, for us, uh, is that it will reduce spending on coverage, that is Medicaid and the tax credits in the marketplaces, by $1.2 trillion uh, over a 10-year period. $1.2 trillion. So surprise, it also said it will reduce coverage uh, by about 24 million people and we will end up in a world again in our country uh, if all of this happens with 52 million uninsured people adding the uninsured remaining because uh, the ACA didn't cover anyone and many people, everyone and many people are not eligible and the newly uninsured who would become uninsured as a result of the changes in the American Health Care Act. I don't know, did any of you imagine returning to a world in America of 52 million um, uninsured uh, people? Another way of thinking of it is the, the, the average subsidy, uh, according to the CBO, uh, in the marketplaces is about 60% of the subsidies uh, in the ACA. All of this, of course, is changing every minute. They created a, changed it a little bit last night. Um, we, we can uh, uh, talk about that. Uh, the bottom line is you cannot cut spending on coverage by $1.2 trillion over a 10-year period and improve coverage. Um, you know, you just can't do those two things at the same time, as of course you all know. Um, so we are in the middle of a fundamentally dishonest debate uh, where everyone is claiming that um, their approaches will accomplish the same thing as the ACA accomplishes, when in fact they have very different objectives and goals, which they're entitled to have. Uh, and we could have a nice national debate about those different objectives and goals and what they might accomplish, but we're not. Instead, uh, we're having, I think, a dishonest debate. Uh, and so the CBO's role is really quite critical because they, other than some private groups like us who also put out numbers, are the official arbiter of this that everyone has to pay attention to. Yeah. So analysis, you've done at Kaiser. It was reported in the New York Times by Chuck Todd and NBC and through other media like John Oliver. That was the fun part. Yeah. I mean, that's real news. Uh, make a compelling case that 
you know, ironically, Trump voters are the ones who are going to get, you know, maybe hurt the most by the plan to replace the sorts of tax credits that are available to buy health insurance through uh, the plan put forward by, by Ryan. Can you explain a little bit to this audience about the proposed tax credits in the Ryan plan and how they differ, say, from the ones currently under the ACA and, um, again, how, how this lines up with... Uh, you know, Trump's own constituency, his own, his own voters. So two questions there, the tax credits and the Trump voters. Yeah. Um, which are each, wor- each worth but an hour. Um, <laughs> the, the tax credits are just uh, fundamentally different. As I've said, it's about 60% of the ACA tax credits. So the ACA tax credits are adjusted by income, uh, by age, and by the cost of health care in the area in which you are. And the American Health Care Act tax credits are just adjusted by age. So the basic difference, which I'm sure many of you have read about, is if you're lower income and you're older and you live in a high-cost area, um, to use a term that actuaries like to use, you know, like usually to use the technical terms, you're likely to be screwed. Um, <laughs> the... Um, uh, you know, you could have a $4,000 tax credit, but a $14,000 premium um, because the credit uh, doesn't adjust with the cost of your premium as it does under the ACA. Uh, there are some younger populations in lower-cost areas who do okay uh, under the American Health Care uh, Act. Um, so it really is um, uh, very different. Um, the big difference, though, um, which uh, I'm writing about in a new column I'm doing, and I don't know if any of you uh, get Axios, which is a new publication. Anyway, I've been writing in the Wall Street Journal, and I've shifted it to this Axios thing, and I have one starting uh, tomorrow, I think. Anyway, um, so you're going to have many more people with a much more modest tax credit. Only the, this is the way the market's going to work if this happens. Only the sicker people are going to stretch to get the more generous plans. Therefore, the companies are going to lose money in those plans and they're going to stop offering those plans. They will no longer exist. What will happen is what I loosely call the bronzification, if you think about it in ACA terms, of the insurance market. It means that what will mostly exist in the new insurance market that will replace the ACA marketplaces are very high deductible plans. So if you're following this debate, everyone's running around talking about what the premium will be and whether it will go up a little or down a little uh, under the American Health Care Act as compared with the ACA, missing the point that to people, it's their total out-of-pocket costs that really matter. And if you need health services, that's really what matters. And what will be available on this market um, are... um, almost exclusively, if not exclusively, high deductible bronze-like plans. This will accelerate um, a trend in the country, which I happen to believe is arguably more important than the ACA itself, which, because it has affected everyone, including the 150 plus million people in employer-based coverage, not the smaller number of people in the ACA marketplaces. And that's the trend towards skimpier high deductible coverage. I think that in terms of impact on people, 
uh, their ability to pay their bills, their ability, therefore, to pay the rent, to buy food, to put their kids through school, all those things which I think health insurance is about. I don't think it's just about uh, getting health care, important enough, important as that is, um, will be affected. And um, so that's, I think, the most important effect of this. I talked about the Trump voters? No, please do. Okay. We did uh, focus groups with uh, Trump voters in the Rust Belt states. And it was truly eye-opening for me and not at all what I, what I expected. So I was in, say, New Cumberland, Pennsylvania, which I'd never heard of until we did the focus groups. And um, I expected to go in and find angry voters who were anti-immigrant, racist tinge to what I would hear. This is not what I heard at all. What I found were modest, moderate, lower income working people truly struggling to make ends meet. People who were the people who didn't do well in the ACA exchanges, who we, in our clinical terms, said, well, you just switch plans and you get a lower premium. And they did. And they wound up in a different network with a different doctor who didn't understand their cancer. You know, they just had really bad stories uh, to tell. And they were struggling. One guy, um, I remember, flew to Poland twice a year because his plan in a narrow network wouldn't cover his diabetes drug. And he could literally buy it, or he said he could buy it uh, in Poland. buy in Poland for $40 would cost him $4,000 here. And he would go twice a year and do that. Uh, These people, notably, had voted for Barack Obama twice before. And then they voted for Donald Trump. They were casting about for a savior. They'll probably cast about for another savior in another, let's say, four years, (laughs) not not, um, eight years. So that's what we found, but that wasn't what was so eye-opening. What was so eye-opening was when we then described to them in very general terms, so these are the characteristics of the kind of plan that Donald Trump or Republicans in the Congress might bring to you. And we loosely and in the most basic way we could described the broad outlines of a high deductible plan with a savings account Um, And we tried our best, as we always do at Kaiser, to be fair about it and objective about it. And they recoiled in horror. And they looked at us and they said, that wouldn't be insurance. I could never live with that. I would be bankrupt if I had a plan like that. But they weren't angry at Trump. They said, Donald Trump would never do anything like that. He's a businessman. (laughs) But they weren't angry at Trump. They were angry at us. What they said more was, why are you asking us that question? You're making that up. That could never happen. I reject that question. You shouldn't be asking us that. He would never do that to us. You're, why are you saying that? And some of them got really physically angry at us for describing what we believe, what is, the basic contours 
of an American Health Care Act plan. Um, how they would feel if such a plan actually passes in the Congress several years from now, and they actually have that plan, well, you can imagine. But it truly was eye-opening for me, and my personal reaction to it was not to be angry or frustrated. It was more to be sad. Yeah, sad. Um, these really were people who were struggling to make ends meet. There was also a note about Medicaid. They deeply resented the Medicaid program, uh, that their taxes went to it, and they uh, had only one wish about Medicaid, that they could be on it, <laughs> because the coverage was so much better. And consistently and universally, that's what they said about it. Wow. And we may come back to Medicaid. Yeah, yeah. Actually, let's talk a little about Medicaid, because that is another feature, as you mentioned, uh, as part of the uh, proposal by, by Ryan. Um, you know, we call that Medi-Cal here in California. Uh, but, um, you know, what, what do you see happening uh, under uh, the, the Ryan plan with regard to the expansion of Medicaid? That was a very significant part of how coverage grew as a part of, of the ACA. Um, there's also, not only they're talking about changing the expansion population, but this idea of how they would pay states through uh, capitated uh, payments yep. uh, per capita. Tell, tell us a little bit about that and how you see this uh, affecting the Medicaid program. So I think the Medicaid changes are potentially more significant than even the ACA repeal and replace. Um, numbers. All told, it's an $880 billion reduction in Medicaid spending over a 10-year period. It's about a 25% uh, cut. So I don't need to tell you how significant that is. Um, uh, they freeze the expansion uh, in um, 2020 and reduce the uh, federal match uh, to uh, from what will be 90% to whatever a state's regular match is in California. 50-50. Yeah. Um, the per capita cap is a much more complicated subject, and they changed it again last night, late last night, to give states the option of a per capita cap or a traditional block grant where you just get a chunk of money uh, trended forward by, I don't, they, I, I haven't learned yet what, what it would be for the uh, conventional block grant option, but a um, uh, Per capita cap freezes the state's uh, spending, uh, and then, uh, but it grows with the number of people on the program, and it's trended forward by some factor, which before last night was going to be uh, the medical component component of the consumer price index. Last night they changed it uh, to be um, the medical component of the consumer price index for adults and children and the medical component of the consumer price index plus 1% for long-term care and the disabled. Why, I don't know, except I will tell you that in the past, one of the ways block grants have been defeated was because of the fact that the disabled community and the long-term care community have powerful lobbies and low-income adults and kids don't. So that may be part of the story, but I have no way of, uh, of knowing. So essentially what a per capita cap or a block grant does is it freezes a state where it is. It means that if there is a Savaldi, if there is an HIV epidemic, uh, if there is a uh, growing opioid epidemic, 
if a state, let's just pick a state like California, decides, we finally have to deal with our provider payment issues, um, which to the extent I understand, I used to run a Medicaid program, the extent I understand California Medicaid um, uh, pervades all parts of the California Medicaid program. That is the disability part, the long-term care part, and the acute care part. Um, they don't have the ability to do that except by using their own state general fund dollars, which will be uh, very, very hard to do. And so the line which you've actually heard is we have to uh, reduce Medicaid, we have to cut Medicaid in order to improve it. It reminds me only of sort of that old Vietnam, we, we have to destroy the village in order to save it. Um, uh, so that's what a per capita cap is, and that's what they would do. Um, there may be some resistance to all of this in the Senate. Um, we will see. Uh, the world behaves as if Medicaid is an incredibly unpopular program uh, that everyone finds their reason not to like. Providers are frustrated with it. Uh, even liberals have their reasons because you know it's not equitable across the states or it doesn't do enough. And conservatives hate it and describe it as a broken program. But I'll tell you something. It's not the old Medicaid program. Literally half of the American people report that they are a family member have been served by the Medicaid program. And they like the experience that they had on the program. If you line it up and talk about making changes to the program or cuts to the program with supposedly sacrosanct programs like Social Security or Medicare, it is not up there with Social Security and Medicare, but it is not far behind. So I still think there's more to this story. There, are, there is another shoe to drop. It will not be the easy win uh, that they think it is. It may go or change, but not quietly. I mean, uh, one, of, one of the arguments that's been made uh, by the Republicans is, well, yeah, we're cutting you, but we're going to give you more flexibility um, you know, in, in states. Uh, do, do you see opportunities for more flexibility? And, and generally, you know, just kind of thinking about California, what you touched on, you know, based on data from Kaiser, California expanded coverage more than any other state under the ACA. Um, you know, are there going to be ways to make use of that flexibility? Are there other things that California can do to sort of, you know, if this ultimately passes, can we, as a state, resist? Are there things that we can do All to right, adapt? So, so now I'm at risk of not having an upbeat message today. This is not, <laughs> not helpful. Okay. Um, <laughs> California has accomplished something unbelievable. The uninsured rate in California is now around 7%. I think it's 7.1%. And more than half of the remaining uninsured are not eligible for the program. Many are undocumented. I have strong views about that issue, uh, but that's not the subject today. Um, and so almost European levels of coverage, really, in, in California. It's an amazing, amazing achievement uh, that everyone here should feel really very good about. Many people in this room have worked on that. But you know, the progress is, is absolutely endangered. Uh, just off the top of my head, um, roughly, if you look at what would happen with the Medicaid cuts and with the uh, changes to the tax credits, it would be somewhere in the neighborhood of 7 or $10 billion a year that would need to be replaced. 
in general fund spending. What states care about is their general fund spending. I, I have been there. And so that will just be very hard. Now, you know, there's almost $2 billion if this law passes in what's called a stabilization fund uh, that could help a little bit. Um, the regular federal match will still be available, the 50% match for the expansion population. It's not that all the progress will be lost, but it will be a real struggle. And what I would alert you to is a real fight about how much progress is maintained and where it is maintained. Personally, if it were me, um, and if I were back in New Jersey running the Human Services Department, uh, while this may not be politically the smartest way to go, uh, and you're in a world where you can't maintain all of the progress you made. I would focus a lot on particularly vulnerable populations. Uh, people with HIV, homeless populations, where we've made so much progress because of ACA coverage. Some of the ways in which uh, the ACA benefits women that will be lost. Um, but there will be a lot at stake in technical fights about what the state does and doesn't do that will affect uh, populations you care about and it will also affect this institution. Right. So we're getting a little low on time. I just want to ask uh, two other sort of quick questions. One is, sir, as an observer of what's going on, anything that you're particularly keeping an eye on to sort of get a sense of where we're headed, what's the kind of timeline where coming are they? up? Yeah, where are we in the process and what are you watching? For it's me? almost surreal. Um, you know, uh, delay, um, the, the longer it takes, the greater the chances that it unravels. So that's what I would keep my eye on. Um, they're trying to move fast for a reason. There are lots of trade-offs uh, and lots of issues with this legislation. So uh, we'll see what happens in the House this week. An absolutely key thing will be how the Senate responds and if it really does move fast in the Senate. Um, a big open question for me always has been, does President Trump really want to expend most of the capital of his first year or his first term on a giant health care debate that he actually doesn't have any personal <laughs> convictions about. Um, but if it really moves that fast, you know, he will not have expended all that much political capital. So I would pay particular attention to the, the next couple of weeks will be absolutely critical. So You've led us through a very fact-based discussion here today, and your organization, like ours here at the university, is about critical thinking and uh, using rigorous scientific methods to develop uh, new knowledge and facts. Um, in a world in which reputable media has been called fake news, and uh, we're learning all about what um, alternative facts are all about. How do you, as a leader of an organization that has relied on the use of information and facts, um, think about um, you know, your, your ongoing role? How do you keep from being cynical? How yeah, do you inspire question. your staff? I'm to... never cynical. But, you know, I, I, I'm a Russian Jew. I mean, I live by, you know, like, 
Dostoevsky's had suffering as consciousness. <laughs> I, I tried to explain this concept to my staff, but it doesn't work. Um, there are some things which I, I believe in and even uh, somewhat upbeat about. One is the media's response to this, because we've all been concerned about the he said, she said, false equivalence in the media, which has been so characteristic of the healthcare debate for so many years. That's kind of gone. I mean, now, the, I'm not talking about Fox or Breitbart, but now uh, the mainstream media is, that is not true. That is a lie. I mean, that is a profound change uh, and a very positive change. There's still our big issues, um, and we struggle with this too at Kaiser Health News. But that's a really, really very positive development. Also, everybody says we live in a post-factual, post-truth world, and yes, false, alternative facts, and I worry a lot about that. But I do think that to a degree, and I don't want to stretch this point too far, and that confuses an election campaign with where we are now, which is a legislative debate. In an election campaign, anything goes, everything went, and it did. Um, but as we just discussed when we talked about the CBO, in a legislative debate, analysis and numbers and facts um, matter more. Um, and we're seeing that they matter more. I actually deeply believe that they do matter and that they can matter. And by the way, what choice do we have but to make sure that they matter and do our best to make sure that they matter uh, on behalf of people? Um, I mean, that really is our job. That doesn't mean it's easy and that we don't have to do some things differently. You know, uh, when the tax credit proposal came out, we had to get our map of how it would affect every county in the country up in four hours. And we did. We used to do stuff, I know you have different masters, I'm not preaching to you, uh, in refereed journals. Now, typically, we put something in a tweet with a chart with backup on the web. I mean, because debate, we have a, not a 24-hour, it's more like a 24-minute news cycle. Um, and to play our role, you know, we have to operate in that kind of world. The last thing I would say is just to share with you, my most difficult conversations have been with my younger staff who are just in disbelief that they're living in the world that they're living in and these changes are occurring. And as I thought about it, I realized, because I'm old, um, you know, they've not lived through uh, get under your desks in the Cuban Missile Crisis or the assassinations or the people in the streets or Vietnam uh, or uh, Watergate. Um, and so their model of progress and change is not continual struggle and change punctuated by very painful reversals. Um, but that has been our experience. And so this just may be one of those times. But we all have to keep uh, at it in the ways that fit us. For each of you, it will be different. For us at Kaiser, we have our particular way of doing what uh, we do, and there's an Andy Beinman way, too. Um, and so I, 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 I believe that in the long run, you know, as a country, we arc towards progress. But it only happens if everyone tries as hard as they can in the ways that uh, suit them. If that sounded like an ending, it was intended to be. Um, so well, it was you. very well done. And- 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.